Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. So totalitarian systems disqualify their opponents by attributing to them motives due to the fact that they belong to the wrong class or the wrong group or the wrong people. And uh, the notion summarizes this dynamic of totalitarianism by saying that totalitarianism denies the universality of reason. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, I have the great pleasure of learning with you all something more about a fellow Italian, once barely known, but now ever more famous philosopher, Augusto del Noce. And I have the pleasure of engaging this topic with another fellow Italian, Professor Carlo Lancelotti. Good morning, Carlo, and thank you for... Good morning. Thank you for accepting this invitation on our show. Thanks for having me. So for those who have not heard of Professor Ancelotti, he's the chair of the Department of Mathematics at the College of Staten Island of the City University of New York. He's also on the faculty in physics at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And he is one of the world's foremost experts in philosopher, Augusto del Noce, whose works he has translated into English. Carlo, of course, the listeners will want to know as much as I do why a mathematician and physicist is translating philosophy. But I want to ask you the opposite question first. Why mathematics? Why mathematics? Well, there is more than one answer to that. But the first thing is that, you know, human beings have a desire for beauty, for harmony, for order. And uh, one of the things that people only discover is that there is all this beautiful abstract ideas that our mind can contemplate about numbers and geometry and the universe and the math kind of is the language in which you express them. So uh, it's something very, that can be beautiful, can be sometimes a little bit uh, technical, but uh, it's something that people enjoy. I don't think that one could be a mathematician or a physicist if they don't like it. So some people like it. So mathematic, because it speaks of an order hidden within reality. Yes, it does. And also in some sense of a transcendent order, you know, I mean, I often say that all mathematicians are a bit Platonists, followers of Plato in some sense, you know, because you believe in a world of ideas. It's hard to be a mathematician if we don't believe that ratios and numbers and circles exist, right? That there is a hint of transcendence in geometry that people recognize since the ancient Greeks. This is a fascinating answer, and I think the best introduction for the topics we're going to discuss today, which is an, an essay you wrote on the new totalitarianism and Augusto de Noche's thoughts on that. But first, you know, for our listeners, who was, in you know, a few words, who was Augusto de Noche, and why is he becoming so famous in our time and age? And of course, you know, why is it that you became interested in him in particular? Well, then Nocio was an Italian philosopher and political thinker. He was born in 1910. He died in 1989. And he lived uh, through the age of totalitarianism, precisely because he was born under fascism. Sorry, he came of age under fascism. And then he lived most of his life at the time where, you know, Marxism was the kind of dominant cultural power in Europe and much of, or in Italy and much of Europe. And so yet to deal with these uh, modern ideas, he himself came from a Catholic background and he remained 
Catholic all his life. So he was rooted, you know, in Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and Rosmini and that kind of classical metaphysical thinker. But he himself was very curious about secular culture, about this secular political and philosophical movements. Uh, and in his day, in his time when he was alive, he was well known in Italy as probably one of the most uh, significant uh, political thinkers, certainly the most significant political thinker with the kind of a Catholic classic, non-Marxist background. Um, after his death, he, for a few years, he was a little bit forgotten, I would say. Now he's being rediscovered. Of course, as far as the English-speaking world goes, uh, there was a lack of translations. And there is what I always call the chicken-egg problem, that if you're not known, you're not translated. If you're not translated, you're not known. I like to complain that, you know, America is a big country surrounded by oceans, and you can see it as a big island, also culturally. So a lot of interesting authors sometimes are not translated for whatever reason, because there is a lot of domestic production of ideas, I suppose. But at uh, some point, uh, I always was interested in the notion since I was younger, because I helped me understand the culture. It's been my, always finding very helpful to understand modern history, you know, fascism, communism, Marxism, liberalism, all these isms. You can call him an ismologist. You know, I was a big uh, expert in political doctrines, which are still with us. So I always find him personally very helpful. Uh, but then I think it was, uh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I, uh, I, I was visiting my father's house in, in Milan, Italy, and I found a book in which, for example, the Noche back in the 70s was talking about the inevitability of, um, for example, it was about um, same-sex marriages, which at the time, like 10 years ago, were kind of a hot topic. And I said, yeah, you know, the Noche really had a very prescient, uh, you know, almost prophetic Ability, not because he was a prophet in a literal sense of the word, but because he had a very sense, very clear sense of the logic of ideas. And, and he was able to say, if you start from A, B will follow sooner or later. Right? So he was kind of a theoretician of the slippery slope, if you wish. He was very good at understanding where things were going. And I said, well, you know, it's kind of a shame that he was never translated into, into English. To, to a large extent, some of the more revolutionary, secularizing trends that we have seen in America in the last 30 years happened earlier in Europe. And so by looking at the European lesson, one can understand also better to some extent what's going on now in the U.S., with, also with big differences, of course. So long story short, um, I thought it was a bit of a shame, and I realized that somebody had to translate it, so I decided to do it. Of course, you get translations with some Italian accent, so to speak, <laughs> because I'm not a native speaker, but so far people have mostly enjoyed them. All the reviews have been very encouraging. So I ended up translating three volumes. The Crisis of Modernity, The Problem of Atheism, and... And The Age of Secularization. And The Age of Secularization. And, you know, heads up for the ones that are signing up for the reading group. We are going to read some Del Noche uh, soon. So for those of you who are in Austin, you might be interested in that. I mean, as, as you were speaking, you know, before moving to the following question has more to do with the essay, I was just thinking, yeah, the first thing, this thing about his living in fascist Italy and, and knowing communism and the communist mentality of it and Marxism, did he at some point em embrace Marxist ideas or was he always, did he never do that? Like, what was the, his path on that, in that regard? There was a period of about one year in his life in which he was very 
interested. He was always very interested in Marxists because, because he thought that Marx was kind of a prototype. I mean, Marx was not just the founder of communism, but he was a real philosopher. They really respected a lot of Marx as a philosopher. He thought that Marx as a philosopher represents the prototype, the first incarnation, the first appearance of a certain type of modern atheism that turns into politics. One of the noted ideas that consistent atheism, in some sense, has to refute the idea of original sin by showing that we can change the world. And so there is there is there is a, there is there is a logic by which a consistent atheist either it becomes desperate or it becomes a politician. <laughs> so, but but so anyway, this is just a very like, a caricature. But the notion was always very interested in Marxism, but he discovered him very late, around 1942, mm. during the war when he was already in his early 30s. And at that time, uh, there was a whole movement of young Italians who. Uh, we're looking at Marxism as a possibility to oppose fascism. And so the big question there was to oppose fascism and then, of course, uh, Nazism. And so some young Italian Catholics had this idea that Marx had an insightful theory of history and one could separate Marx's theory of history from his atheism and replace it with kind of a more Catholic, traditional morality. So their project was to combine the Marxist theory of class struggle and economic analysis with the Catholic ethics, right? So this project was very tempting for Del Noche's generation during Second World War, and he himself was interested in it for about a year and a half, I think he says, between 1942 and 1944. But this motivated him to really re- read Marx. And really, the, his reading of Marx, especially of the Young Marx, the, the manuscripts of uh, 1844 is called, and the uh, German ideology, those are the Marxist earliest works, really showed to the Noche very quickly that the Catholic Communist Project, as it was called, the synthesis of Marxist theory and Catholic ethics, was not going to work because uh, Marxism was too deeply atheistic. Essentially, Marxism does not accept the idea of ethics. Marx does not advance the revolution out of a sense of social justice. You know, it, it is the direction of history, right? The way Marx justifies the revolution is not on moral grounds, but on historical grounds. It's where history is going, and we have to follow history. So if there is a morality, it's the morality of what, what the Noche called the morality of the direction of history, which is very different from the traditional Christian Catholic morality. So anyway, yeah, if there is anything just is what we make just, right? Is what, what we make of it. It's an interesting thing. And I, so I would recommend then reading Del Noche too. You know, I think that this confusion, a, a sort of confusion remained on the possibility of combining the Marxist views with the Christian, mm-hmm. with the Christian idea. And maybe more so in Europe than, than it ever happened in the United States. And I find it, you know, this very useful to explain certain you know, the, the success of some so, so-called socialist parties all around Europe or democratic socialist party to non-Europeans and when, when they need to understand how that was even possible. You mentioned also something you know, about his pre-science and beings being prophetic. Somehow that reminded me of what you said about numbers and your fascination with numbers. Because if I feel like if someone can read reality and see reality for what it is, there is an order. Right. So more than mm-hmm. using the slippery slope arguments, just like, well, you know, it's like in an equation. If you add these two elements, it's pretty difficult that the result is not sure. going to be um, the, the one the one that we're facing. And so that leads me to, 
you wrote this essay on the new, on Augusto de Noche and on the new totalitarianism. And he does make a prediction there that to me is insane, you know, how, how accurate uh, he is in describing uh, the reasons why totalitarianism did not end with the Second World War. And, and he speaks of a totalitarianism that is embedded in the sexual revolution. So if you maybe want to start from there. I think the, the, the reason did not recognize some totalitarian trends in the sexual revolution, for example, is because uh, what he remembered from his youth was that totalitarian systems, they cut off dialogue by claiming that the opponent has some false motivation. Like, for example, the communists will say, you can say what you want to say, but you say it because you are a bourgeois, because you are a wrong class. So it's not really that you're making a rational argument, you're making a bourgeois argument. If you're a Nazi, you would say you're not saying what you're saying because you're thinking, but because you are a Jew or because, you know, whatever the enemy is. Okay? So totalitarian systems disqualify their opponents by attributing to them motives due to the fact that they belong to the wrong class or the wrong group or, or, or the wrong people. The not just summarizes this dynamic of totalitarianism by saying that totalitarianism denies the universality of reason. What does it mean? Universality of reason means that we all share in the same rationality and we can make arguments and counter arguments and try to persuade each other. But there is no persuading somebody who believes in the direction of history, right? So there is no persuasion of a person who thinks that you are speaking this way because you are a Jew or because you are a bourgeois or maybe because you are a racist. You know, even racist could be turned into this kind of ideological category and used to disqualify people. Or, going back to the sexual revolution, the notion is that there was the repressed, the, the bigot, the, the person who is sexophobic, <laughs> you know, all these phobias. Okay, this is an example. To the notion, when you use the word phobe, or I say when you abuse, when you abuse the word phobe, you are engaging in borderline totalitarian thinking because you're not saying that your morality is different from my morality, it's wrong, it's right, we can find common ground somewhere. No, you are psychologically defective, right? The phobia. Typically, it's like a psychological problem. You, you know what I mean? So in, in, this is what it means. The totalitarian denies that there is a reason that we all share in and divides people in groups and, and attributes your ideas to the group you belong to, right? You know what I'm talking about? You, you speak like you speak because you belong to a certain group. And this group has to be left behind by history. And now there is a new rationality. And so you don't have... You don't deserve to be listened to. This, this was the reason why he thought that the sexual revolution had these totalitarian features, because it attributed the, the ideas of its opponent to some kind of psychological repression, right? Inadequacy, you know what I mean? And by being, yeah, and by attributing this, there's absolute end of dialogue. And with that, the absolute, yeah, the impossibility of a relationship between the, the exactly. two parties. Right. You cannot talk. There is no nothing to talk about because you are a bourgeois. I'm a proletarian, right, or, or something like that, and 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 so, the, the, in a sense, uh, today I think certain extreme forms of identity politics would be recognized by Del Noche as uh, totalitarian. In as much again, they attribute people arguments to the group they belong to, right? Behind this idea of uh, denying reason, there is the idea that reason is strictly historical, right? That there is basically that that, that there is nothing permanent. 
right? That there is nothing permanent, there is no permanent moral values, there is no permanent truth, like mathematics. <laughs> that in real life, ideas are instruments that we use to manipulate reality. History changes and then values and ideas also change. So if something is from the past, to be this, uh, at some point it will die. Everything will die, right? So if you have ideas from the 19th century, you can be discarded just because the history is going in a different direction, right? So there is the idea that the, the totalitarian movements have their own forms of ethics, of morality, but it's based on what he says, the direction of history. In fact, the way history is going, right? And there is the people who go along with the flow of history and the people who try to stand in the way of history. And this is what separates the good from the bad. The good are the people who go with the flow of history and they are up to date, so to speak, and the bad are the people who cling to the past. And on that, we could have also the Ubermensch, which is the one that decides the direction of history, right? The, the, yeah, the there hero. are some similarities. Yeah. Although, you know, and Nietzsche's Overman is very individualistic, while, of course, the Marx is collectivist. Since you bring it up, the Nietzsche thinks that totalitarianism is political atheism. I mean, I think that, that, that he believes that once you eliminate the transcendent, once you eliminate this kind of transcendent, permanent values and truth, it is kind of normal that people then will start thinking that they can make their own history and that history determines morality. Yeah, so, and, and you talk about this in your essay, and, and this is what we're discussing, although I also want to link to the one that you wrote on tradition and the idea of tradition, the Noche, because that's where you explain exactly this, right? That recognizing the value of tradition means recognizing that there is a reality, a truth, that is permanent. And so there is something to learn from the past. But talking about totality, if totalitarianism exists whenever atheism is the dominant idea. So whenever we reject resendance, there is um, totalitarianism. Then I would ask you, what is in a diverse society, in a tolerant society, should religion be in the public square? If so, how, where did we get things wrong? Where are we going totalitarian? versus being tolerant? Well, that, uh, I would, if I had an exhaustive answer, I would be probably rich. Yes. And Noche was, in some sense, a liberal, not in the American sense, in the European sense, uh, which I would put it this way, that he, he believes strongly that the truth must be accepted free, right? that, 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 there is, that, that if it is not accepted free, it's not accepted as truth. So he was not in, in any way somebody who thought that you can force religion on anybody. Having said that, he thought that society, he thought that societies are societies if they agree on some basic common evaluation of the human condition. So, I mean, either a man is at some level radically different, say, from an animal, or is not. I mean, you, 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 a society has to agree on this or not, right? Either, again, ultimately, the religious questions, for example, are valid and important, no matter how you answer them, or they're not, right? There is a whole level of questions and statements that they may not be explicit religion doctrines like the Trinity or the incarnation or, you know, the immaculate conception that, however, are decided in one way or another. Everybody answers them no matter what, right? Either perfection is possible, for example. Is a perfect society possible if you try hard enough? Or is there some original flaw in the human condition such that it's more prudent to try to limit damage as opposed to pursue perfection. See, this is another metaphysical philosophical decision that 
everyone has to make. Engel notes the fact that at this level, pluralism is impossible. You know, if you, if, you, if you have a society in which half of the people think that you can make human sacrifices and the other half thinks that you shouldn't make human sacrifices, you don't have a society, right? You have people living in the same space, living in the same territory geographically, but not unified by any common ideal. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yes, but no, no, I, you absolutely are. So it's by dismissing the question as irrelevant and then from there, maybe banning it, even, you know, saying we cannot ask this question in this realm, right? Like we're treating, right. we're, we're talking about healthcare. We cannot wonder whether it is right to kill or not the person right. who's suffering, right? Because that right or wrong is a question that doesn't belong in the healthcare environment. And so right. that's so extreme. I, I, yeah. The um, logic would certainly disagree with extreme Anglo-Saxon or whatever English-speaking procedural liberalism. The idea that, that you can have no common values, that, that it would certainly disagree with that. I mean, that you don't need them. He says that society cannot operate without making implicitly or explicitly certain metaphysical decisions. And what is, I think is fascinating is how you point out that, I think it's him, right, that just uses the word scientism and points out how we move from the good life, which was what, you know, we often talk about the good life here at the Institute of Church, bring it back. We had to move from the good life to well-being because the mm-hmm. concept of a good life implies, you know, a life inspired by virtue. And it's that with well-being, it's something that we can, that we can measure that is just based yeah. on some factors, right? How satisfied are you with your job? Are you satisfied you're with your marriage? Like, and, and plus or minus. Right. Psychological analysis, which is kind of the post-World War II American form of totalitarianism, right? Which so very... I, I wanted to ask you precisely about that, because I think it's fascinating when he says that there is this elimination of philosophy in the metaphysics, because you we would then use psychology or sociology and mm-hmm. measuring, but without, like, the premise is not, the premise right. is, is not explicit. Is that, could, could you... Say a little more about that. Yeah, I will. I mean, the notch in the 50s and 60s, when he was uh, now mature, he lived through what we can call the golden age of the human and social sciences, right? And especially in the US, this idea was common that religion is a source of division. Philosophy is not ultimately possible to achieve a consensus. So we can build society around a consensus based on science, which by necessity must include, since physics, of course, will not do anything for that, or chemistry, you need the social sciences. There was the idea that you can set philosophy aside and just uh, unify society through a sociological, psychological, anthropological analysis. And the notion calls this uh, sociologism, meaning precisely the make turning sociology into an ideology. And he was critical of it because in his view, again, even the best sociology, knowing or not knowing, makes philosophical assumptions. It's impossible not to make philosophical assumptions. But what is worse, once something receives the shine of science, you have this situation in which, again, you can deny the universality of reason. You can become totalitarian because you can just say that, you know, science says A, and there is the people who want to follow science and the people who want to follow religion. The opposition of science versus religion is very artificial, right? But it is exactly kind of the slogan of this type of sociologism. The truth of the matter is that uh, every sociologist, when you have to evaluate whether society is working or not, you have to make some assumptions about what's the good. (laughs) You have to make some assumptions about what's desirable, what is human fulfillment, what does it mean to have a working society. The the, the devil is in the rubrics. You know, the rubrics is how you check the points and, and and, and discuss 
and discuss uh, whether we are doing well or not. Uh, but if you forget that, if you forget your metaphysical and philosophical decisions, then you can force your own metaphysics onto everybody else under the cover of science. And, and this is what claim that science is the only form of knowledge, as if you did not, did not rely on some pre-made uh, decisions. So the notion calls this kind of ideology scientism, you know, the turning of science into an absolute method of knowledge. And again, gives it the sees totalitarian elements there. Yeah, there is a quote that you have in your essay that I, if you don't mind, I would like to read here. as uh, directly from, from the Noche. Quote, the collapse of the idea of a normative order of values that had been affirmed by traditional moral thought and that in some way the secular morality of the 19th century wanted to preserve. The only remaining value will be the increment of perceptible life, in short, well-being, and every human activity and religion itself will be viewed as a vitalizing tool. Now, mm -hmm. I wanted to have this quote because I'm working in a research institute that does a lot of sociology, but many times what we, even working here, find disturbing or not credible is when human flourishing is measured with this assessment of well-being that pretend, try to make us believe that they're being unbiased. By any, you know, and, and that's exactly what, what he said and what you were just saying. This, 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 this is impossible, right? There is an assumption. And according to Del Noche, this setting the premise aside and living in what he calls a technological society, which you might want to share what, what exactly he means by that, by being technological. But he says that all this leads to the absolutization of politics, like everything becomes political. Maybe the passage is not that clear for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, for him, technological society is precisely a society which is closely, totally closed on itself. Again, the, the, there is no transcendence. There is, and you know, and he says that even in Marxist, in a sense, there was a transcendence. Like I said the transcendence was not vertical towards God, it was horizontal towards the post-revolutionary perfect society, right? But in some sense, even if it was in the future, there was still transcendence. There was still something that was a different reality. Now, the technological society assumes that the reality we have is the only possible reality. There is no heaven, there is no Marxist future, there is just this world. So deal with it. <laughs> the best we can do is to manipulate it with our ideas, with our techniques, with our tools, and make it the best possible world, but we are stuck with it, right? There is, you cannot dream of anything else. There is no transcendence. And so, in a sense, we totally belong to it, right? We, 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 we are like the cogs of a machine, There is no world outside the machine, and we are part of it, and, 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 and you cannot, in a sense, complain. You cannot rebel because there is no, nothing outside to compare against. You know what I mean? There is no outside criterion to accuse the machine if the machine crushes you, so to speak. Um, so you see that in this is where the totalitarianism comes in and also where the politicization comes in, because then what is the fulfillment of human life? It's not to conform to an ideal. There is no transcendent ideal greater than that to which we can strive, right? There is no beauty, justice, uh, truth that we are going, that is, that is greater than us, that we can try to strive for. Ultimately, the fulfillment of human life is to change, to, to operate change, to make change, to bring about change into this closed system you know, the, the, uh, of the world. And how do you bring about change? How do you make a difference? Well, politically, I mean, it's, it's obvious that, uh, of course, uh, you, can be a you can be a technician and make some local change with your lab or with your 
machinery. But the greatest man is the man who can change the all of this society, this whole machine, by being by acting politically. Which so to me I makes mean, a lot of sense because if politics becomes the way we interpret everything, then you know it makes sense right. that we live in a world where we are divided on every issue. Yes, and and again, politics is the going back to Marx. Politics is the interpretation of the direction of history. Right, since since the since the only criterion of truth and justice is the direction of history. The politician is the interpreter of the direct movie. I very much like uh, something that Professor Robbie George often, often says, that there is no such thing as the right side of it, being on the right side of history. And that's probably a lie that we have been, you know, inheriting and listening to and thinking that there yes, is. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a Marxist idea, which, of course, you don't need to read Marx to come up with it again. I mean, the notion does not think that Marx was the, the source of all evil or anything. He just thought that he just think that Marx was the first one to express certain ideas that can be also rediscovered independently. You know, you can have somebody in Texas who never read Marx, but if he follows a certain logical trajectory, we'll end up with the direction of history, with the importance of politics, the primacy of politics, and and so on and so forth. It, it, again, the notion was good at catching the logic of ideas, then, of course, Marx is used as an example, you know, as the as one of the, the, the first one who kind of really, you see this happen for the first time, but it can happen again in different ways. And it had happened, as he points out in the past, and, he, you know, talking about the Greek, Greek sophistry and on the other side, the desire to find the metaphysical reality of things that we have in ancient Greek For example, yes. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and so this is why, you know, uh, the notion it was a bit sometimes in in conservative circles there is a bit this idea of the domino right that that there was somebody who made a mistake back I don't know Occam or or Descartes or Bacon or Marx made a mistake if somebody had killed Marx when he was a child nothing would have happened you know because there is this sequence of bad consequences of course there is intellectual traditions and influences and people read books and learn from other authors but. Some things can also re-happen on their own. Nominalism happened with Occam, but then it didn't dominate for 700 years. Why did it come back? Well, anyway, these are complicated things. The notion was not a simplistic thinker. We shouldn't be too linear ourselves. So we, you know, when people talk about cultural Marxism, it's both true and can be exaggerated. You know, I mean, it's true that now, for instance, in America, you see ideas that you can recognize as Marxist. Some of them don't come from a direct influence of Marx. Some do. I mean, it's complicated. But they might have the same rejection of the transcendent. Right, exactly. Makes, makes they me think they of... May end up, they may end up in the same place. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, like Gnosticism. You know, now the, think of the these people who think that the singularity, you know, the transhuman, what do we say, the, the people who are, going, we are going to become science and technology is going to make us these super universal brains. We are going to download ourselves in a supercomputer and live forever. That's Gnosticism or the Matrix, right? The 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 all the movie, the Matrix. That's a kind of a, a Gnostic view of the world, but it's not because these people necessarily read the Gnostics of the fourth century. It's just that these are permanent temptations of the human mind, and of course, they also propagate through books, but they can also come up by themselves. I think. Yeah, and the mention of Greek sophistry in this case, and it was also by Joseph Pieper. 
was also talking about that and his abuse of language, abuse of power. So there's some of that, but all these, you know, bad ideas and good ideas that come back. I think in that, you know, King Solomon says it when says there's nothing new under the sun. And and I think that it's good for scholars to remember that whenever we think that we are writing or thinking something that, wow, well, but it was already said, it was already done. No, that's normal, right? There is no, no, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I mean, I would add that there is something specifically post-Christian in some of the modern heresies, you know, uh, meaning that Christianity did bring something new into the world. And so also some of the reactions against Christianity had to be somewhat new, right? And, and this is the notion idea that the modern age is marked by atheism, meaning that some of the old heresies like Gnosticism took a new flavor, a new form in response to Christianity. So uh, Christianity in that sense could be the exception to King Solomon. <laughs> that, what's that, that, that is, brings new factors, but otherwise you are correct. Yeah, and in that sense, he did, does say that the only real choice is between seeing man as Imago Dei or as a mere mm-hmm. homo faber. Absolutely, yes. Right. Yes, he, he takes that from Scheller. You know, Scheller was this um, German philosopher. He wrote about, uh, he, he said of Imago Dei, he used the homo sapiens. He talks about homo sapiens versus homo faber. I mean, the homo faber is the man who builds his own reality. Like the politician, Marxist politician is the man who creates himself through his work, through his activity, through his ideas, produces himself. The Homo sapiens recognizes the reality as given, right? The reality is not something I'm making, but it's given to me. And so these are two fundamental uh, different stances. And again, they are incompatible. You, you can pretend that you can live in the same society, but at the end of the day, unfortunately, you have to decide because uh, they bring completely opposite consequences. You made me think of something that I often say, you know, how law schools, um, I would say, are, are very different, you know, European law schools from, from American law schools. And there has always been this formation that is also philosophical. And I know that, you know, in the older generation, uh, one of the assigned books was, uh, was the Noche and, you know, the Homo Faber concept. So having lawyers that deal with, you know, uh, everyday um, controversies being formed to these differences mm-hmm. between, you know, what is an almost happens. I think that it w- that would lead to a different class of like a different quality of legal professionals that. I hope Professor George is not listening to us, but, you know, it's true that it's interesting how much more important law professors are than philosophy professors today. And I think that connects a little bit to the sophistry question. <laughs> because, you know, because, because a sophist is a master of the argument, a right? master of argumentation, mm-hmm. a little bit like a lawyer. And uh, after the golden age of the social sciences, you know, English-speaking philosophy has become more and more technical. Analytical philosophy and philosophy of language. And so philosophy kind of has given up, the, the notch also says that, has given given up the claim to really look at reality in its entirety and make general assessments of values, right? Uh, since the 50s and 60s, philosophy has restricted itself to a kind of a very technical, specific work. And some of the space has been taken over by people like law professors, and God bless them. But you know what I mean? It is true that there has been a bit of a switch there that is a little bit symbolic of what you were talking about when you talk about sophistry. Not sophistry uses a bad word, but it also means simply 
I don't know. I think, you know, to answer to this, I think that I would, I could just say that it would be true. And it is true if it is lawyers who start doing philosophy. It is less true if there are philosoph philosophical minds who law do, who do law as, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So Absolutely. Um, but okay, let's put it this way. Then I would put it in a positive sense. It's yeah. interesting that the philosophical yeah. minds often have to work in law schools. That is very true. On that, on that, I would totally agree. And I had a great PhD supervisor, you know, as a criminal lawyer. But to me, he's like one of the best philosophers, like like active philosopher um, that that I met in my life. Speaking of this, you know, if we're stuck with the with what exists, there is this reality that Noche says that every reality becomes dumb and it loses because it like it loses its ideal and symbolic significance. And that reminded me of the way sex is described in Brave New War, mm -hmm. right? Like where it becomes meaningless because people don't see the point if it doesn't lead to reproduction or if like, you know, what's what's the point of it? And so what I wondered was, you know, we are we are in a privileged position here at the Institute because the students that we end up meeting are students that are looking for some answers, dissatisfied mm -hmm. with the answer. But I think, you know, you have a broader audience, um, you know, you're, you're a math mathematics and physics professor. So you see um, a broader uh, sample, like a, a wider sample of, of kind of students. Do you think that there is this dissatisfaction, like our reality is not, is marriage, like, do they see the point of education, of marriage, of... Well, you know, I mean, uh, really, you don't need to be a professor. If you look at, you know, popular culture, movies, uh, books, by and large, sex is a consumable. I mean, it's something that, that you consume in the abstract, kind of unrelated from any teleology, which is the fancy word today, from any end, from any bigger purpose. You know, it's not that you are, not only you are, it's not related to children anymore, it's not even related to the sense of participating in a universal story, you know, man and woman, you know, Christ and the church, you know, yin and yang. I mean, there was, the, in all human cultures, sex was in some sense a participation in the larger religious story. Okay, you, you can find many examples across the great cultures of the world. It is just uh, one more commodity. To a large extent, isn't it? I mean, of course, now this is exaggerating because people still have a desire to love and to be loved, but even that desire is to a large extent separated from sex as the abstract, you know, thing that one can have. You know, I mean, I always complain about the English expression to sex. It's like to have a pair, you know what I mean? It, it, it is like there is another person involved, but the way it's pronounced to have sex, there is no person. Where is the person? Where is the other person when you say, having sex you know it is a very brutal in a sense uh, reduction of the experience of a relationship then people of course are human so thankfully they don't we hope some of them at least they don't accept that and they still desire a relationship more than desire to have sex you know mm. but uh, the cultural push generally speaking is again scientific i mean from a scientific perspective sex is satisfaction of an urge satisfaction of an instinct can be measured, how many are satisfied. I mean, you know, the sexologists will ask you, are you satisfied? 90%, 80%, 70%. You can have measure how many people are disorientation, that orientation, uh, how many people are happy with their sex life, they're not happy. You can do all these measures, but at the end of the day, it's not that sex has any meaning, right? And so that's what the Noche complains about. And it basically says that, you know, sex has become purely like a positivistic idea, it's just something that the psychologists know about, but 
there is no bigger mystery involved. And his answer in saying, you know, you need to bring back the transcendent is something that probably we all need to keep in mind whenever we think that in order to have a quote unquote secular conversation, we need to leave God out of the door, which it's true, as we said before, you know, coming to the specific answers that we give. But the remaining like remaining transcendent simply means we do not let the technological Marxist view of the word prevail. Right. And I think that the human art is behind us, meaning that, that, that people do have deeper desires. You know, at the end of the day, to affirm this kind of materialistic or positivistic view of human relationships, love, sexuality, involves a serious reduction of what people truly desire. Because if people did not have those desires, then Marx would be right. Or, you know, but people do have larger desires. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the transcendence is not just an abstract idea that we bring in from outside, but the transcendence is just a reflection of what you find also in people's own structure, what people want and what the people aspire to, what people desire. So one one should start from there, I guess. Yeah, start from listening to, to the things you know about yourself, regardless exactly. of what the word tells you is or isn't true. So, uh, Professor Ancelotti, I want to thank you and we could continue to talk for another 20 minutes, another hour, another day. I think the, the amount of ideas in Del Noche is, is immense. And there is this other essay that I was mentioning, the one on tradition. I think that that would be worth a whole episode in itself. What I wanted to ask as a final, you know, as a final question to you was more for people who are interested in you know, and discovering more about the Noche, but, you know, even if you had other philosophers, maybe even English, you know, American philosophers or books, essays, things that you would recommend for people that want to learn more. In general, not specific on the Noche. Well, on the I Noche, mean, tr- for, for sure. You know, if there's I a- mean, I, I, I always have very good conversation with Michael Hamby, you know, the philosopher from Washington, the John Paul II Institute. Yes. He's a little bit apocalyptic, as I tell him, but he has a good grasp of American situation. He, he likes the Noche. He's a little bit critical because he thinks that the Noche does not fully understand the American twist to modernity, but that's the conversation that we are having. But I mean, Michael, I think, is a good person to read. I'm from Italy, so there is a couple of other philosophers that I like. They're Italian. There was one, if people are inclined to a more Thomistic philosophy. I know they're now translating Cornelio Fabro, was a very good when I was younger, I was influenced by Farid Giussani, who was a theologian and writer, and his books are available in English. In particular, there is one called The Religious Sense About Human Desire, which has to do with what we were talking about. So that would be worth reading. And, you know, I like, uh, there is French guys like René Braille are very good, worth reading. We will provide links yeah. to, to all the things you mentioned. And I particularly like to take also on Father Giussani. There was something I forgot to ask you. And, you know, the, the reference to Giussani brought it back to my memory. It was about the religious phenomenon. You know, why, if, if you have, I don't know if you have an answer to this, but if you had a brief answer to why apparently the U.S. remained a more religious country than Europe did. And if this is, if this is just an appearance with that, emptied religion that the Notre talks about, or if that is a... Uh... That's, a good, that's a very good question. I, 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 in, that's one of the things that Michael Hamby and I debate. He's very negative in American religion. Okay? One can make the case that Protestantism is more dualistic than Catholicism, right? Dualistic means that it's more of a separation of reason and faith, for example, right? And so in Protestant cultures, it's possible, it's easier, perhaps, to maintain a form of religiosity 
while your judgments about sexuality, work, uh, the economy are already more materialistic. You know what I mean? So that's one interpretation. The one interpretation is that because of Protestant dualism, America is more atheistic than church attendance mm-hmm. would suggest. Right. And this was also the thesis of my friend, another person worth reading, David Schindler, actually two Schindlers, father and son. They're also very good American authors that one should read, but they are both very negative on American reading. Having said that, it's true though, that in America, there is less weight of history, right? So people are more, in some sense, open, which means that like while in Italy, you still have all this weight of you know, cathedrals and artwork, and that kind of keeps people grounded. In America, people maybe have less of that tradition, but they're also more curious, more invest, more seekers. You know, I mean, I, I, I have met very great believers and people and thinkers in America, but they were usually self-taught. <laughs> they, they, meaning the explorer, that they were, the explorer mindset. The explorer is something that you can find more in America than in Europe, I think. But I think that's the strength of American religion. There is still this freshness of people searching, and sometimes you find these great personalities that uh, find out things. Uh, but having said that, Del Noche was not optimistic about America because he felt that exactly it's less anchored. So um, felt that if there is a process of disintegrating, of disintegration, what he calls this process of disintegration, he thought that America was potentially more fragile, as was his. Which, you know, I, we could agree that it was true since we both live here. We might also agree with what you just said, that there is also more desire to do better than more, you know, what I found, feel yeah. like the trust yeah. that we can. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the God is fair. There is always pluses and minuses and, and you know, and we, you have to do the best with what you have. And, I absolutely agree. I think we made the best of what we had in terms of the time we had for this recording. So thank you very much again. Absolutely. And I hope to talk to you again, maybe to have you here in Austin at some point. It would be delightful. Oh, great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. And of course, if you like this episode, please share it among your friends. Give us a five-star review. And remember, we live thanks to your donation too. So do not hesitate to donate. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.